Thanks for clicking play on the East Lake Tri-Cities Talks podcast. If you're new to this, we're trying to be the best church option for people in the Tri-Cities who aren't typically into church. We hope today's talk inspires you to take next steps in doing life in the way Jesus modeled and taught. If you're ever interested in being a part of one of our in-person gatherings, they take place every Sunday at the Uptown Theater in Richland. Check the website for current times. And regardless of what you look like, who you voted for, or where your tattoos are, we'd love to have you. But for now, here's our most recent talk. If you're watching this online, uh, we're so glad that you tuned in and uh, are making this happen or watching a replay as well. Happy Mother's Day to all you moms out there. Did you know this? Fun fact, this is crazy. You can look this up. Uh, less crime happens on uh, Mother's Day than any other day of the calendar year. More than Christmas, guys. Isn't that crazy? Mother's Day. Mother's Day. So probably because they're all getting celebrated. They're not out there raising hell. Anyways. Um, <laughs> Uh, we are on part five of a five-part series called Asking Better Questions. It's a series on the Bible. It's about asking better questions, which is a good kind of rule of, of life. Life observation for, for me at the beginning of the series was simply that some of the smartest people in the room often ask the best questions. You can kind of tell who the smartest person in the room is based on the way that they ask questions. Um, sometimes you can come across, uh, you know, the kid in the classroom who's like, I just want you to know that I know what you're talking about and these idiots, this is for them really. And so they ask a question. But for the most part, um, you sat with people and you've left the room before and you'd be like, I want to be like that person. Like the way that she asked questions, the way that he asked questions, um, clearly understood a, an understanding of the situation and then like thinking steps forward on that. And so um, in life, you should be better at asking questions of your spouse, uh, of your kids, instead of just asking how to go today, uh, diving into being, you know, asking better questions in that way. With your mom, as you text her happy Mother's Day, if you, if you begin to like ask good questions of your mom, she's gonna, she's gonna be like, I don't need a card. I don't need flowers. You're inquisitive about my life. I love you, right? Like what better message you can send to your mom than, uh, asking a good question about how things are going or whatever. But when it comes to the Bible uh, as well, I think, I think uh, I, I, we said from the beginning, I think the church is an interpretive community of the way of Jesus and the Bible in, in its modern context. And this is the job of, of the church is to week in and week out, take an hour out of our week, we're busy people, but to dive into this and look at what it says and how, how we move forward with this. Um, and we should ask good questions about this thing. I, I think it's, um, it's not a one-way street. And if you attended a church or grew up in a religion that's like, don't ask any questions, this is we tell you what this says, don't worry about it. Um, that's not what we wanted this community to be. We wanted this to be a safe place um, to say, hey man, I, I don't wanna check my brain at the door. I wanna like think through this thing logically and how does this fit? And wh what if what I see here doesn't match up with um, how I perceive reality outside of the walls of this church? I just wanna nod and sing songs about this kind of stuff and then it doesn't actually have any implications in, in my real life. And so we, I, I said, I think we, I wanna help in this series provide an overview of the Bible and what it is to help you ask better questions. And to provide that overview, we said it's best to understand the Bible comes to us um, in, there's like different sections of the Bible. There's basically five breakdowns, which is a little bit oversimplified. There, there's more than that, but sometimes uh, simplification is, is, is kind of healthy and, and practical and whatever. But law, prophets, writings, and there's a gap, and then gospels and letters. That gap represents the two differences between what Christians would call the Old Testament and the New Testament, or the Jewish scriptures and the Christian scriptures. Uh, but essentially three sections in the, old sec in, in the Old Testament, two sections in the New. And if we could understand that... Uh, uh, each of these sections represents an, uh, a strategy or an approach 
um, to what is trying to be communicated that I think that will help us uh, generate perspective and context uh, about what are good questions to ask as a result of those things. And so um, five sections, five weeks in the series. So we spent the first three weeks working through law, prophets, and writings. Last week was on the gospels. Uh, and today we're going to be focusing on uh, the letters and how it works. If you have missed any of this stuff and this stuff interests you and, and this you know, perspective of the Bible or Bible study uh, is of interest to you. There's a website you can go to eastlaketricities.com slash talks, uh, as well as we have an app um, that you can click on and, and follow along with the talks. But uh, from the beginning, he said, what is the Bible? And if I said, if I, you know, had posed a question to all of you and said, hey, take out your Connect card, write your definition of what the Bible is uh, on the bottom of the Connect card, I'd probably get some varied responses. There'd be some similarities, obviously. There's 66 books, uh, 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New, written by plenty of different authors, a number of authors, a little bit unknown in terms of who wrote what, and did they write several books or just this book? Um, but uh, we know that the time span is big, that there's, uh, uh, that, that the Old Testament was written probably uh, formed put, or put together while the nation of Israel was serving time in, in Babylon as exiled people away from their kingdom, and they decided we're going to write down our personal history. It ends in Malachi or um, in, in the, the Jewish scriptures and Chronicles, but and then there's like this 400-year gap, which is called the intertestamental gap between all of this stuff and then what we see in the person and, uh, and the teachings of Jesus. But the Bible as a whole um, and the operating definition that I've been kind of working through as a part of this series is the collective thoughts or anthology of a people who were wrestling with the idea of God, what it meant to be the people of God, and what it meant to be to the invitation or to operate under the invitation to walk in the way of Jesus. Um, I, I think that's a, a great way of, of looking at it. Are they writings? Yes. Are they all from the same author? No, there's different styles, different things going on, but it's a collective thoughts of people for, from multi-generations in multiple different contexts who wrestle with the idea of God. Uh, the invitation to be a people set apart uniquely, first off as a nation, eventually as a church, uh, and then what it means to walk in the, or to respond to the invitation to live into the way of Jesus. That is, I think, what the Bible is. And I think that there is an overall story to scripture that will help us understand what do we do with the letters, um, which has been the question every time. What do we do with the Torah? What do we do with the law? What do we do with the prophets? What do we do with the, uh, the, the gospels? What do we do with the letters that we see, the, the rest of the New Testament outside of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then as we'll see, Acts a little bit as well. What do we do with those? I think to understand that, you have to understand that there is a story that is being told, that there is a thread, although sometimes it's not as clear. Um, and sometimes you've been around like a, a back patio during this time of year or a campfire when you're out doing the camping thing and, and so-and-so starts with a story and halfway through the story, you're looking at them going, is there a point to this story? I mean, I'm really hoping that you wrap this around somehow. Or maybe you've read a book and you're 200 pages into this thing and then all of a sudden you're going, I just don't know how you know, you're looking at how much is left of a book and how much you've gotten through. And you're like, can they wrap all of this up in this little section? I don't think that they can, right? And so, but you keep reading, you do your thing and you, you hope, you want there to be a story. Why? Because our human intuition, our human brain functions in, we like the trajectory of stories. We like being presented with the context. We love tension when things are gonna resolve the question of if they will. We love characters, protagonists, people to cheer for, people to root against, um, situations that go, wow, what's gonna happen? Is it gonna work out? Is it gonna happen? And we can't, can't you know, we keep turning the page. We keep clicking yes when it says you wanna play the next 
next episode? Absolutely. I can't go to bed now. I got to know what happens. The phone's ringing. Like there's something happening with whatever the case is. We want resolution in that way. And for the resolution to take place, the whole story has to be going somewhere. And so that's been kind of perhaps one of the reasons that you've, uh, you know, not been uh, all about the Bible or, or, or it's been a tough read for you is because it, it can feel like, I'm not sure, it feels like a scattered, perhaps it's a scattered uh, shooting of all of these different things that are out there. And I don't know how to make it make sense in one final story. So I'm gonna attempt to help us figure out the thread that runs through it. And I think that'll help us kind of understand the story. All right, uh, any good story uh, has some sort of a preface. It, it's, a, it's a way of kind of setting the stage for how these things work. I think the preface takes place for the Bible story, the story of the Bible in Genesis chapter one through 11. It walks through a creation story uh, that the world is created out of, um, out of hope and out of wonder and out of excitement and out of wanting to bring something to existence, uh, wanting to speak life into something, wanting to do this intentionally, not haphazardly, not accidentally, that the creation story as they did Sure, they borrowed some of the Canaanite myths of that time, but, but what was being told to these people is there is a God who created out of love and that he wants a relationship with his people, that when things were at its best, he walked with them in the garden in the cool of the night. When things were perfect, they were in perfect union and relationship with God. That, that he is for them, that he's not anti them. A lot of the, the, the worlds or the religious myths at that time about the creation of the gods where the, the gods created them to do the work that the gods didn't wanna do, uh, that made perhaps two gods got in a war and that's why the earth was created. People had an, a, a wild and vast understanding of where we come from and why are we here at this time and then inserts and then shows up this creation story shown to us from the Jewish um, tradition, which is that God created out of out of love, uh, that, he, that he wanted to expand his creation, that he invited them into the co-creating process, that he looked at his creation and said, be fruitful and prosper and have dominion over this world and, and, and continue the process of creation beyond this, which is a kind of, kind of completely different story. I mean, we read prefaces to stories to kind of help set the stage to figure out where we're at. When you open Harry Potter, right, and you read the first few pages from J.K. Rowling, you understand this is a different world that, that I don't live in. I, help me to understand this world. That's why the opening chapters of any book, especially one that changes uh, into like a fantasy world or an imaginary world or, or something, are so critical. How do I communicate what the parameters are and what the truths are about this place and what the feeling or the ethos or whatever of this place is? That's a good preface, sets that stage early. And that's what we see in Genesis 1, chapter 11, 1 through 11. Early on, creation story. Then some family conflict almost, almost immediately. Two brothers in a fight with each other. There's a murder, like one of the first families have a, has a murder, meaning it didn't take long for people to figure out if I don't want anything, I can have action or take agency on this and do something about it. Uh, the Tower of Babel's in there. All of this, the, the flood, all of this, Things were created to be good. People go sideways. People do what they want to do, and conflict ensues, as and hijinks ensue uh, as a result of this. That's the preface for this. The world is a messy, dark place, but it wasn't always created. It wasn't created in that way. It just turns out that way because human beings are involved. Then. We move on to the introduction piece after the preface. So once that stage is clear, once we know the foundation's been set, then uh, a man named Abram is introduced to us in Genesis chapter 12. 
that God interacts and, and, and comes into history and calls a man named Abram out to go look at the stars one night and says, can you see, can you begin to even count all of the stars in the sky? And of course, that's impossible. He's like, I wanna make you into a mighty nation. I wanna bless your family so much that your descendants will be as numerous as these stars. And here's what I wanna do. I wanna bless the world and I'm gonna bless a family to be, I wanna use people to do that. I wanna be a blessing to the world. I'm gonna bless you so that you'll be a blessing. All I'm looking for is somebody who will respond, someone who will trust. I wanna bless the world. This is the means in which I'm going to do it. Abram responds with a positive yes. He leaves everything he's, he's, um, uh, everything he's comfortable with. He walks into the desert completely trusting God. It's a picture, introduction of somebody who finally responds with trusting God and how that thing goes for him. Again, family conflicts, it's this, you know, his son and his sons and their sons and all that kind of stuff. Um, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. It's an ups and downs of this thing. Trusting God is hard. We know that, right? Uh, and it ends in the introduction piece with a large family, not quite as numerous as the stars, but yes, uh, a man with 12 sons who finds his way uh, into Egypt, first as an invitation, as a guest, uh, and eventually not so much after that. Um, and that thus ends the introduction of it. God wants a people. God wants to bless the world. He wants to do it through somebody and through someones. And, and, uh, and, and then here, here they find themselves in slavery. Then we get to the major narrative portion. This is the thickest part of a book. This is the biggest part of any story. The narrative is essentially Exodus through Malachi. It's the conflicts uh, of the history of a people who have responded, who now find themselves in slavery, in a slavery mindset, invited out of that and into a promised land. Um, and it, while they're in this promised land, they're, they're, they're making their way. They're trying to figure out what it means to be a civilized people once again. Uh, they have successes. They have failures. They have good kings. They have bad kings. Uh, they forget where they came from. They forget uh, the commandments. They forget the, the, the uh, conditions of the promises of God. The, the, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, these blessings and cursings, if you choose to obey and walk in faithfulness, you're going to be blessed in this way. If you choose to not, there are going to be some consequences to these actions. You're going to find yourself lost and broken. They find themselves lost and broken. They find themselves uh, splitting off their families into two different kingdoms and then kingdoms being overtaken in the north by the Assyrians and in the south by the Babylonians. They find themselves in exile and they find themselves going, we were once called to be the people of God, to bless the world, to be blessed so that we could be a blessing. And here we find ourselves broken and lost and wondering, was all of that a joke? Was there any truth to that whatsoever? What do we do with all of that? And so they begin to write down their history, which for us comes to us in the form of the Old Testament uh, or the Jewish scriptures. Here's where we came from. Here's who we are. Here's what we stand for. Here's what it means to be the people of God. Narrative ends in Malachi. And last week we said that the gospels show up that something is announced, that there is a shift in the story in this moment. It's the climax of the story, if you will. If you've ever read a book and you got to the part where you turn to your, you know, your spouse, your significant other, and you lean over in bed and be like, I'm staying awake for a little bit longer tonight. It's, it's getting really good, right? These are the chapters I wanna stay awake for. These are the ones where I'll just call in a little bit late to work tomorrow because I'm gonna play next episode and keep going on this. Um, the gospel stories show the person, the teaching of Jesus, that God made himself known through the person, like inter, entered, uh, or inserted himself into the story in a radical way. And in a way to be able to tell that story to the people, they decided to write this down uh, and, and they decided to leverage a common literary device called a gospel, which we said wasn't even religious at the time. It was a propaganda thing tool used by empire to propagate information about a new king 
king and a new empire and you're in good hands with Rome because Caesar Augustus is now here and he's the prince of peace and on his shoulders sits the governments of the world and they will look to him and he will be a north star for you and the calendar and the the world is gonna operate around him. And when they sat down, they go, we think the climax of the story is in Jesus. We think everything about our history has been pointing to this point, that it's about Jesus. So we're gonna hijack a literary tool used by secular society and tell a story about Jesus and what he was and what he meant and what his invitation into a different way of doing life in light of a new king and in light of a new kingdom might mean for believers. That's the climax of the story. That's the part that's really good, part of the episodes you can't miss. Then we said, or then in the fifth part of this whole narrative story, here's how it ends. What's called the epilogue. An epilogue is always um, what happened next, right? At the end of the Sandlot, they say, Squints Paladores went on to be a tech salesman. Uh, this guy went on to be a baseball player. The, it, it, these shows, these movies that end and there's like a black and white thing with the words that, or any sort of historical fiction book that, or, or movie that kind of ends and you're like, there's more to this. What happens then? Here's the, here's the epilogue. Here's the thing that goes out that's like, what happened next? Jesus stands on a mountaintop and says to his disciples, go into all the world, making disciples of me, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then the acts of the apostles or the actions of the apostles is them taking the words of Jesus and going and spreading the message of the person and the teaching of Jesus into the world, taking missionary journeys into all kind of the outer reaches, taking it from uh, Jerusalem and Judea into Samaria and into Greece uh, and into Rome and up into the Ephesus and all of these areas uh, in the north and modern day Turkey, all of these things, expansion of the church into little tiny communities of churches or witnesses to who Jesus was, that we live differently now because of this. It's a fantastic sort of epilogue and great conclusion to the story. That is essentially, I think, the story of scripture, which is great and inspiring. And hopefully, you know, maybe like it finally makes sense of how all of that kind of fits together and works and plays out. But if you're sitting there going, yeah, but where do the letters fit in. You'll notice that the letters of the New Testament, letters like Colossians and Ephesians and Philippians and Galatians and Corinthians, where do all of those sort of fit into this thing? Here's my best guess on how this works, okay? And this, again, this is kind of like, it's an educated guess. I feel like I'm, I'm not just throwing, I'm just not sitting there randomly throwing darts at a wall. I do think it's, I, th- I think there's perspective on it, but I do want to kind of preface it with, I might be wrong, who knows? I'm just a guy trying to figure this out, right? Um, I think that the New Testament letters are inspired conversations about applying Jesus and this new kingdom into the unique context to which each is written. I think that when Paul sits down to write all of his letters and James and John and Jude and all of these different things go out into the world, they are inspired conversations about applying the hope, the new hope and the new kingdom ethics of Jesus that he introduced into the world into different communities, which is why they say a little bit of different things. There's some similarities, but there's some differences as there would be if you were writing a letter to each of your kids, right? If you have multiple kids, when you write a letter to them, you write to them based on their unique personality. There are things that you say to one that you don't say to the other, um, that you change, but you love them equally and that they're still your kids and you still want them. You want, you want the same thing for them, but you lead them differently. If you're a teacher, you know, teaching students, you do this as well. 
we, we look at it and say, here's a big complex thing. How do I make this you know, work make sense for you? In the same way that every year about April 14th, um, you and I both log into Intuit uh, TurboTax and we go, all right, I've got to pay taxes tomorrow. Help me. Uh, maybe you're a lot earlier than me. That's fine. Um, here, here into it, here is several hundred dollars. You take complex tax code. You tell me what's uh, informative and relevant for me. Well, do you own a home? Yes. Do you uh, live in Washington State? Yes. Do you have kids? Yes. Make sure you get those on there. Those dependents, got to add those things, right? Um, do you, have you bought or sold a blah, 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 right? We're doing all of these things. We are, what we are doing is taking something complex and figuring out how to apply it to the specifics uh, of the season of life that we're in. in from, from January 1st until December 31st, did you do any of these sort of things? That's, that's essentially what we're doing in that spot, right? I mean, so what I see in these letters are the complex new ethics of the kingdom in a place like Corinth and in a place like Colossae. There's a Jewish term for this type of thing because this isn't like New Testament uh, alone. This would have also been a part of even religious circles from the, the, the Jewish scriptures as well. Um, they had the Torah and they had the Talmud and they had the Midrash. Midrash is essentially commentary. This is our best guess at what this might mean. This is rabbis going based on our study of Jewish scripture. This is what we think this is what we think God would have said in these scenarios if, they had, if he had chosen to talk about this. Um, now, he didn't. We only have the other ones. But one way that you could look at the New Testament is to see the letters as inspired authoritative midrash on applying the gospel. So in the same way that Jewish scriptures had their own version of midrash, I think that what we see in the New Testament letters are exactly that. It's Paul saying, all right, um, based on the, uh, the way of Jesus here, for those of you living in Corinth, a major metropolitan area, a crossroads of commerce, a, a place where um, empire is like, it's very wealthy. It's, uh, it's got a lot of things uh, from a worldly point of view that are successful. It was like the Las Vegas of, the, of that kind of a world, right? People would vacation there, they would go there. There was money was affluent uh, and, and very, all that kind of stuff. There, is, there are certain ways of doing life as a Jesus follower in Corinth that are different from those that I talk about in Galatia? Or, or what if I live in Rome? I have a letter for you. What about if I live in Corinth? I have one for you. Does pastoring a church on the island of Crete look different than it does in a place like Ephesus? Paul would say, absolutely. That's why I wrote a letter to Titus and I wrote a letter to Timothy. And one of the things I think is so valuable about thinking through it in this way is that perhaps what Paul and all of the other, I'd say Paul mostly because he wrote most of the letters, but other people too, what I think the authors of the New Testament letters are trying to do is help people think about how to think through things, not just what to think. I think there's, and, and this, by the way, is what good educators do. Your favorite teacher in life growing up, um, maybe you didn't get the best grade from them, but they taught you how to think through something. And, and when they taught, you were a better person as a result of it. It achieved the goal, which is you know a more educated person thinking through some things. This is this is the, this is the, the a key component. You've also had teachers who've just told you, hey, by the way, this is going to be on the test. Make sure you memorize this, and that's fine. And you like them because you get good grades from them, and that's great. But they didn't teach you how to think. They just taught you what to think. They said, there's going to be 20 questions. Here they are. Go for it. Right? It's not as good of an education piece for it. You as a parent 
understand the value of teaching your kids how to think through life, not just what to think. Now, when they're three, four, five, six, 12, 18, whatever, you do sometimes have to teach them what to think, right? Don't touch this, it's hot, right? Um, that is an example of a, a what to think sort of thing. But eventually they get to an age of maturity where you're realizing like in a couple of years from now, like you, you think in your thought to your mind, a couple of years from now, she's gonna be making her own decisions. And the reality is she's doing it already, right? You know, so there's like this balance as a parent that you're going, I have a certain window of time. I get to teach another human being how to think. I walk them through what to think for a while, but at some point we transition this, if I'm gonna be a good parent, to how to think uh, of this. And I think what we see in New Testament letters is exactly Paul and the other authors navigating this exact same thing. And it's not just New Testament things, by the way. This shows up in the Old Testament as well. Look at this, Exodus chapter 21, verse 28 through 34. Here's a, here's a, a, a law as, as it's presented to them. This is, again, uh, the author of, uh, of Exodus, Moses, or you know, people like this who are trying to pull people out of 400 years of generational slavery in Egypt and figure out what it would mean to live in a civilized society with one another and get along with one another. If we are gonna live in community with one another, it's gonna, there's gonna be a retraining of how to think through some things. So this is gonna feel kind of obvious to us because you were born into a law system of American like law, right? Where there's like, you have to kind of take care of your stuff and, and make sure that uh, you're, the way that you do life doesn't infringe on anybody else and yada, yada, yada. If a bull gores a man or a woman to death, the bull is to be stoned to death and its meat must not be eaten, but the owner of the bull will not be held responsible. If, however, the bull has had the habit of goring and the owner has been warned, but has not kept it penned up and it kills a man or a woman, the bull is to be stoned to death. Uh, but also then it goes on. Nope, that's it. I'm just kidding. That's it. There, this, is, this is them walking through this scenario where they're like, all right, there, there's a bull. Like, for those of us reading through this, is this a problem? There are a lot of gore, bull, you know, the, like bulls that are goring people, like that we have to have these kind of laws? Or is this, this author trying to present, hey, if we're gonna live in society, you're gonna have to like take care of, and I, I know accidents happen, but if you know something is a risk and you don't fix it, you're gonna be held partially responsible for this sort of thing. This is, this is a big deal. This is them kind of walking through this. This isn't excessive litigation just in case. This is a classic example of even at this early stage in the lifespan of, of, of thought, of humanity, of, of human thinking, um, I'm not just teaching you what to think. I'm teaching you how to think through this positively and so that you're a better person as a result of this. What's the principle here? How do I take this into other places and what kinds of other places? What we see in the letters is the apostles. And now I'm back to the letters in the New Testament. Now. I'm just showing you that this, is, this happens all the time in, in, in life in general. Why would that not apply over here in this New Testament letters? We see them engaging in some apostolic application of Christ into each context. And I don't think that they intended for their letters to go together, that James read through Paul and he's like, well, Paul's kind of lacking in some stuff about you know, making sure that your faith is walked out by what you do and the works that you do. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna offer my perspective on it. I think that's a gap that Paul missed and a blind spot, so I'm gonna pen my letter. I don't think that that's the case. I think James was writing to his specific church and what were the needs of my church at that time? What they need to know is their works need to be come out of a place of understanding that my faith is made known by the things 
things that I do, that I only believe the things that I do, and so I'm gonna write those things down. I don't think he was writing it anti-Paul, but it is hard sometimes to read Paul and to read James and to kind of figure out how they work, and you can kind of sort of maneuver it, and you can kind of make these things work, but I don't think it was meant to be this moral code that everyone believes at all times. What I think is James is writing to people in Jerusalem, his church that he leads, people that he knows, And I think Paul is writing to people that he knows, people who see him as an external authority figure or an external elder in their community who had once been a part of planning the church and now wants to write back and say, here's what you should do. But in both cases, both scenarios, each of them are just offering something in context. There are certain things that, there are some things in life that only make sense at certain times and in certain places. Let me give you a real practical example of this. Do you remember three years ago um, during like, it would be like April uh, or May of COVID, right? Early, early, early on. When you would go to Costco with your mask on, one person from your family would go and only during certain hours. And the sign on the, on the little white board outside is, we are out of toilet paper, don't even ask. Remember when that was the case? Remember when there was a flood on the market for these things? And it was like, uh, there was like an underground black market for, um, for toilet paper, um, and it was crazy. And you're like, I got to drive to four different places and everybody's calling each other being like, can you believe this? Um, we had somebody in the church and God bless them, love them. They were here first service. And so I, I even told the story and, um, and they had come up to uh, me after or called me or reached out to me or something like that. And, uh, and, and they said, listen, um, if you need some toilet paper, We've got you covered. We have got a garage full of this stuff. Don't tell anybody, but we have so much right now, and we would love to take care of you and your family, right? Which was great. And at that time, it was like, at that time, it made sense. Now, every other year I've ever been alive, if somebody comes up to me and says, listen, man, if you need some toilet paper, I've got you covered. I'd be like, I, I don't even know who, like security, <laughs> who are you? Uh, what, what is this about? In that season, for that season, what it meant to love your neighbor or be a neighborly sort of friend was looking out for those kinds of things. But that doesn't make sense at all times, at all places. So to take that and be like, what, if I was to stand up here and be like, being a good neighbor means having plenty of toilet paper for all of your friends. You'd be like, well, I mean, for like six months that was true, but it's not generally true, Right? But during that season, the filter was, what does it look like to be a good friend? That's what it, that's what it looked like back then. And, no, and nobody would have laughed. Everybody would have been like, oh man, what was the name of that person? Could you give me their phone number? Is there, we would have been like, yeah, that makes total sense. In the same way, I think sometimes Paul is writing things to specific communities. That James is writing things to specific communities going, here's what you do. Here's what, here's what the existence of the person of Jesus and here's what his commands to love one another, to put somebody else's needs ahead of your own, to treat somebody in a way that not just you wouldn't wanna be treated, but to go above, that's just the silver rule. The golden rule is treat them the way you would want to be treated. Don't not do things to them that you wouldn't want done to yourself. That's what we tell our kids to do. Don't hit, would you like to be hit? No, you wouldn't like to be hit, so don't hit. 
We instead, if we'd said, you would love it if somebody gave you that candy bar and said, we would love it if, you, if, if, if they let you sit on the window seat and you had to sit in the middle seat, right? You would love that. Why don't you go and act that way? Like, we, just, we just don't do that often, oftentimes. And he would say, what does that mean in this scenario? Let me tell you what that means. And he begins to write all of these things out. When Paul writes to the Philippians, he's attempting to help them apply the gospel to their unique text. When he writes to Philippi and the church in Philippi, he's doing this for them as well. Listen, the, in all of the, how do we read the letters? In all of the letters, the goal is the same. Apply the gospel. How? Good question. How? What does that mean? What does that look like? Great question. That's worth studying. That's worth looking over. Why does he say this here and not here? Why in Paul's letter to the Roman church, does he highlight the fact that there are several women who are working in the ministry and for the ministry of the church, bragging about it as a point. And then in Ephesus, he creates categories of where women belong and don't belong within the church. How, how does an author contradict himself so greatly even in those moments? Is there anything specific about the low grade of women, the perception of women in leadership in Rome that he's trying to address? Or is there something about the way in Ephesus where it was a um, high in the, in the religious culture of the day that there was goddess worship and so religion was, was highly uh, feminized in that way? And so perhaps in that scenario, we need to downplay the role of women in ministry. And over here where they're already downplayed, we need to update it and do this. Is this an application that is, that is related to the current context of what is most needed in that community? I think that's the only fair way to read it. Otherwise, how do you make sense of this, Paul? You seem to be like one day you love women in ministry and one day you hate women in ministry. What's the, what's the, what's the, what's the big deal? Well, perhaps the community needed to hear two different things at two different times. I don't think it was a, about establishing a moral code of conduct in all sorts of places, no matter what. He was applying the same gospel um, to unique places with unique circumstances, even in the form of a single letter. Check this out in 1 Corinthians chapter seven. Here's him writing, offering advice to married people about what it takes to be married, what, it, you know, what the special requirements are. If you've made a commitment of fidelity in marriage to somebody, then to the married, I give this command. And then he says, not I, but the Lord. Let me clarify. I think in this point, he goes, I think this is something that is not from me, that I think an application, because the question then becomes, is there anything that Paul says that's relevant for everybody? Sure. In this scenario, he goes, I'm telling you, if you're married, this is what I think the Lord is saying to you. And then two verses later, he says, to the rest of you, I say this. Now in this scenario, it's me and not the Lord. So even in this same exact letter, he's going, there's things that are worth it for everybody, a, a moral code for everybody. And then there's things like, if you're just asking my opinion, I've got an opinion, here's what it is. Those are two different things in this way. When we read the letters, we are eavesdropping on conversations where the apostles taught their audiences how to think, not just what to think, like a good parent, like a good educator, like somebody who's leveraging his position of authority well. He is trying to teach his audience and his people and the people of his church, the people that he loved and cared for, the people that he had a relationship with, how to think, not just what to think. And to simply read, um, to simply read the letters as what to think is just, I think, to miss the bigger picture. Because when we read it as how to think and how to apply the gospel in the current context, then what we get to do 
is look at our context, look at our world, look at the things that we're going through, and as a community go, what would it look like to live the way of Jesus in this world and in this context, in the world that we inhabit, in a world where technology and tech and algorithms and uh, AI and all of these different factors that were not that are not addressed, we're not even on the radar of, of the people who read this. They would, the fact that you would have a cell phone would have been like you know blown their minds in this way. But it's just an assumed reality for us. Those circumstances are different. How do we apply the gospel? Here, perhaps our study of how the gospel was applied then might inform our ability to figure out what it means to apply the gospel now. So what's the value of the letters? It trains us how to think. We read them. The more that we study, the more that we see what was going on in Rome or in Corinth or in Philippi at the time. And then the approach of that goes, ah, okay, now I can look and interpret this from a cultural angle in my world today too. And God, would you help me as I read the letters, understand a little bit more of how to think. Because I think a dedication to the scriptures in this way, I think a a, 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 a focus on this, a saying, I'm gonna, I value this to the point, and this is the lens in which I look, at, look through it, is gonna help me think better about the application of the gospel in my life. And it's gonna help me ask better questions. So that's how I would read it. To conclude this with this is just simply that God isn't trying to teach us what to think. Like a good parent, he's trying to teach us how to think, and he's inviting us to co-reign with him as he brings shalom into our world today. It's been a part of the story since the beginning. The story just continues. The epilogue doesn't necessarily end with Acts. It ends with the church. The church is focused in Acts. The birth of the church is in Acts. But at the end, it's almost like this little ellipses where it's like, and what's the church going to do next? That's a great question. That's for history to write itself. And that's where we find ourselves, that the story isn't over. We're just continuing the story, continuing to interpret what God wants done in this world. How do we be a blessing to the world? How do we see our blessings in life as a filter of him doing something in us for the sake of the world? That's a better way to read the scriptures. That's a better way to ask better questions of the Bible. Hey, at this time, I'm gonna invite the band to come back up. They're gonna lead us in one last song. We're gonna receive communion together as we do at the conclusion of every series. Got a couple people who are going <clears> to <throat> slip out and get some trays ready. <clears throat> How we do it is, uh, well, uh, in theory, what, what the, the point of communion for us is uh, no matter what we've talked about in a, in, a, in a series, it all climaxes with the story of, of the person of Jesus. Um, that's easily true when we talk about the Bible because, you know, that, that's true. But it's true of every series that we do. Um, and so we, that's why we highlight at the end of every series um, that no matter what we're talking about, Jesus is the, is the hero of the story. Um, with his disciples, and the last night that he was with them, he shared a meal with them and uh, broke bread with them and drank wine. And we that's reflected in the, in symbolically in the, the tiny little wafer. They, used to, they did a whole meal. Uh, you know, you eat lunch somewhere else today, so we'll, we'll give you a little snack um, and uh, remind ourselves of what, what this all means. There's going to be some explanations on the screen for what the value is for us and what we think about it. It's an open invitation in our church uh, practices. You don't have to be a member of this church uh, to, to uh, participate in this. You're invited, but not obligated in any way during the song to slip out of where you're from, where you're at, come forward and uh, partake, head back to your seat, do it at your own time. Uh, and then I will come up at the very end and do a formal dismissal uh, after that. But would you stand real quick? The band's gonna begin to play. The stations are gonna come on down. 
Father, we uh, thank you for your word. We thank you for your revelation in history, um, both in what we look at when we step outside and see beautiful weather and mountains and all of that, but also uh, through the special revelation of your word, the inspired, orchestrated story of your interactions with first Israel and then the new Israel, which is the church, uh, and into our world and how we read it today. May we apply the gospel uh, in our context with our family, in our workplace, and in our life. Give us the wisdom to know what that looks like, the curse to do something about it. In your name. Thanks again for listening. If you've got more questions about the church or community group options for connecting with East Lakers outside of Sunday mornings, I'd encourage you to check out our website, eastlaketricities.com, or better yet, download our app by searching East Lake Tri Cities in your favorite app store.